A warm good morning to you all. It is a joy to be gathered in the capacity that we are on this Lord's Day. I'm so thankful for this church. I've been here, I've been a pastor here for over a year, and the Lord has greatly blessed me with this position. I was talking to my wife, and this spot right here is one of my favorite places in all the universe to be in this pulpit and to share with you God's word. I thank you for your patience with me. Sometimes I go back and listen to my early messages here, and I ask myself, why on earth did you hire me? But I'm thankful that you did, and I thank you for your patience with me. We're continuing in Philippians this morning. Let's go ahead and open up to Philippians 3, verse 9. In these next three weeks, we're going to be covering verses 9, 10, and 11. And this pa- the, the remainder of these passages in this section, they break down very nicely. So I'm going to give you kind of an outline of where we're going. I've mentioned a number of times that whenever you study the notion, the concept of salvation in the Bible, salvation is more than just, I was saved. There are three components to salvation in the Bible. There's a past tense. I was saved. I accepted Christ. I was uh, born again. It's a past tense. Oftentimes, whenever we speak of salvation, that's the aspect that gets the most attention. I was saved. But there's also this middle progressive category of salvation. I am being saved. God is saving me. I am being sanctified. The Bible speaks about this process and this process of salvation. We obey the Lord, we follow his commands, we share the gospel. And this is a very important part of salvation, this progressive sense. And as Pastor Jesse alluded to, there is this not yet aspect of salvation. I will be saved. This is future tense. We do not not have all that we need now in the here and now. We wither and die. But one day we will receive a resurrection body, a physical resurrection body, and we will live with God forever. Now that's not right now. That's in the future. So salvation is, is all of this. We can't isolate one part to the exclusion of the others. Salvation includes all of this. And what we're going to see in Philippians is that each verse, Philippians 3, 9, 10 and 11, each verse captures one of those aspects of salvation. Look with me in the passage, Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, what aspect of salvation is verse 9 referring to? It's referring to the past tense. It's referring to what happens initially 
when we come to Christ. The word that's used to describe that part of salvation is justification. Hence the title of this morning's sermon, Justification. Read with me in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What part of salvation do we become like Christ? That is sanctification. Once you are saved, once you are justified, the Lord is not done with you. He puts you on this process, this lifelong process of knowing him, knowing the power of his resurrection, knowing the fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. It's this process. So verse 10, Philippians 3.10, is about sanctification. It's about that process. And then looking again at verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is future. This is referring to glorification. This is referring to a future reality that God promises to the believer. God promises, dear Christian, to raise your body from the dead. Now that's future. But verses 9, 10, and 11, it break down beautifully. This is just really beautiful here. So we have justification. That's going to be our topic this morning. Verse 9. Verse 10 refers to this process of salvation. We are being saved. And verse 11 refers to the future. So that's kind of an outline of where we're going to go in these next few weeks. To describe and to explain what justification is, I'm going to be using a metaphor, an extended metaphor. And this metaphor has to do with citizenship. Citizenship. We are all born into a place, a country. And a symbol of you being born in a country or a nation is that you receive citizenship. Now, you can receive citizenship differently. It's if you're born here, you have it automatically. But also, if you have American parents and you're living overseas in some type of military base, you can be a U.S. citizen that way. We all have this citizenship. I imagine that probably all of you are citizens of the United States of America. And citizenship, what citizenship, citizenship excuse me, is about, it's about allegiance, right? Oftentimes it's seen that wherever you're a citizen, you have an allegiance to that nation. And I personally have an allegiance, a loyalty to this country. I consider it a tremendous privilege to be born here. I I don't understand other than just pure anarchy why people would want to tear down this country. We have such freedoms, freedoms that the world has never known, and I consider a tremendous blessing. I have allegiance. I, I swear some type of allegiance to this country. Now, other people have a dual citizenship. That is possible. I was reading online this week that, I don't know if this is true, 
But someone said that they had nine different citizenships. They had nine different passports, that they were citizens of nine different countries. So we can have dual citizenship. We can have more than one. You might be a citizen of a different country. So that's a reality as well. And there's also the reality of renouncing your citizenship. We have such freedom here that you can actually give up that freedom. You can say to the government that I no longer want to have a U.S. passport. I no longer want to be a citizen of this country. You can renounce your allegiance to this government. So that's the metaphor I'm going to be using. And as we go through the different points of this morning's sermon, it will make more sense. So I'm going to use this metaphor of citizenship and allegiance to answer this question. What is justification? What is justification? Using the metaphor of citizenship, what is justification? First point, first idea that makes up the broader idea of of justification. Justification is not, so this is a negative statement, justification is not self-allegiance. Justification is not self-allegiance. Now looking once again at our passage. I'm getting this morning's sermon from verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To understand this passage, there's one word that we have to really dig into. What do you think that word is? Righteousness. The word righteousness occurs two times. It is a very important word. Now to understand righteousness in our passage this morning, look above, with, look above the verse 9 and look at verse 6. Paul uses the same word righteousness in verse 6, 3, 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Same word. What Paul is saying in 3, 6 is he was giving his autobiography prior to Christ. Prior to coming to Christ, in verse 6, Paul is saying that with my contemporary Jewish friends, the men who I associated with, I had this righteousness that rendered me blameless in their sight. Paul is using righteousness here in verse 6 as a way to understand his relationship to other people. Righteousness here means blameless, uprightness, being right. That's what Paul means here in verse 6. With that in mind, let's go to verse 9. And what Paul does here is he takes righteousness, the righteousness that he had before his fellow man, and he no longer uses the comparison of righteousness with people, 
but he brings it into discussion with God. How does this righteousness that Paul had before man, how does it do in the courtroom of God? Does Paul's righteousness before the people hold a candle to God? That's what Paul is addressing here. And this righteousness that Paul had was, quote, from the law. Now, this law here is referring to the Old Testament law. It's referring to all of the precepts that God gave Moses to give to the people. And Paul was scrupulous in trying to obey the law. He was a Pharisee. Verse 5, 3, 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Paul had studied the law, and he'd studied all the minute details of the law and all of the oral traditions of the Pharisees. And he was scrupulous to obeying it and following it. So whenever Paul says from the law, what he's saying is that Paul's obedience derived from the law. The law Paul is teaching gives forth something. And Paul believed that the law, due to his obedience to it, gave him a gift. And that gift was righteousness, a right standing before God. And Paul interpreted this righteousness with this statement, of my own. It was Paul's own possession. Prior to coming to Christ, he thought that due to his deeds, due to his circumcision, due to him being a Pharisee and scrupulous and understanding the law and obeying it, Paul thought that the law gave him a gift. And that gift is his own righteousness, his own right standing before God. That's the idea. Paul's dealing here with self-righteousness. Now going back to our metaphor, the metaphor was that of citizenship, allegiance. If Paul had a passport before coming to Christ, so the passport is a sign of our citizenship, if Paul had a passport, his passport would say self-righteousness. And who gave him this was the law due to his obedience to it. And what Paul is saying is that that passport, that citizenship, that allegiance that he used to have to himself, of what value is it? Not having a righteousness of my own. What Paul has done in light of Jesus Christ is he has taken that passport and he is disposed of it. He has renounced his citizenship to himself. He has renounced self-allegiance. And this highlights an aspect of Christianity that I've been emphasizing a lot and that is emphasized a lot here. And that is this, to be a Christian, to be justified, requires 
a rejection of self-righteousness. To follow Jesus, to be right with God, requires of you to take your passport of self-righteousness and to dispose of it, to reject it. And I want to make an observation about this passage that I was interested in. Does the devil show up in this passage? Is the devil here? No, the devil's not here. What is Paul's main problem? Is it the devil? Or is it himself in this passage? Paul's main problem was himself. The biggest hurdle that Paul had to overcome in coming to Christ was that passport of self-righteousness, was that self-allegiance. And dear friend, the devil is real. As Pastor Joel read from Zechariah 3, the devil is real. The devil accuses us. The devil spends day and night seeking to bring you down. But you know what also brings you down more? is yourself, yourself, your own thoughts of your perceived value and worth, your own thoughts of your good deeds. Dear friend, that keeps you from Christ. To be justified, to be right with God, If you have this question, Pastor, how do I become right with God? What is the first thing I have to do to be right with God? You must reject self-righteousness. Absolutely necessary. You must say with Paul to God, God, I have no righteousness of my own. Absolutely critical. And that problem comes from your own heart. You have to see that the problems of life reside within you. And that your own perception of yourself is the greatest hurdle that you must overcome in becoming right with God. You must take that passport and discard it. That's our first point. Now the second point has to do with this dual citizenship. Looking at this passage, what are the two types of righteousness here? It's my righteousness, Paul's righteousness, and also God's righteousness. This is the question that I want us to ask of this passage. Is there a third category? By that I mean a little bit of my righteousness and a little bit of God's righteousness. Going back to our metaphor, 
How does justification, what does justification have to do with the notion of dual citizenship, dual allegiances? Does the Bible allow us, does this passage allow us to have two passports? One passport says self-righteousness and the other passport says God's righteousness. Does this passage allow that? And this is our second point, it's this. Justification is not a dual allegiance. Justification is not a dual allegiance. I imagine that you can see where I'm going with this. There are two types of righteousness here. Paul does not allow a middle ground. This is a strict either or. There's no hybrid here. There's no middle road. Well, Lord, I'm going to have a little bit of this, a little bit of my own perceived righteousness, and I'll have a little bit of yours. The third category of a dual allegiance is not admitted here. We're faced with a choice of either or. Now, this middle category is very popular, though. And, and, and pastorally, my biggest concern for us is this middle category. Many, many, many people believe that salvation, being right with God, is based upon and a little bit of what God does. Of a hybrid is the basis of all false religions. I shouldn't say all, many. This hybrid of having a little bit of my righteousness and God's righteousness is the basis of many false religions. Many people find this appealing. And to give an illustration of this, this illustration, this example, comes from Mormonism. Now, Mormonism, there was a, an article in the paper recently in the Cap Journal about some Mormon missionaries here. And dear friend, it is important to remember that not all who claim Christ are Christians. It's very critical that we know that. In this article, the name Jesus was used, and I'm reading it, and it's... <laughs> I don't share the same meaning, understanding of the word Jesus here. So it's important that we understand how other religions think and process things. And whenever it comes to salvation, when it comes to how is man right with God, listen to what Mormonism teaches. This comes from the book of Second Nephi, 2325. Uh, Nephi is one of their holy books. It's like what we would say, Second Corinthians. Listen to what Second Nephi says. For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. Now that sounds very similar to what we teach, isn't it? Very similar. Listen to this though. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. We're given a thumbs up, that's right. After all we can do. 
For we know that it is by grace we are saved, comma, after all we can do. One more time. For we know that it is by grace we are saved, after all we can do. Now, dear friends, dear Christian, what is wrong with that statement? The error is found in that little short statement at the end. After all we can do. Essentially, what it's teaching is that to be right with God, you must do all that you can to earn righteousness. You must strive. Now, you're going to fail. And the portion that you fail... God will come in and grant you grace. But what we have here is a hybrid. Do the best you can. You're going to fall short. And God will come in in the end and help you. So here we have in Mormonism a hybrid. Now dear friends, does that work with sacred scripture? It does not. We have to be discerning about doctrine. This stuff matters. Now, my concern for us isn't necessarily doctrinal. I don't believe any of us are reading 2 Nephi and saying, yes, this is the truth. That's not my concern for you. My concern is not that you have a theological middle ground. I think that you would say to me, yes, pastor, I agree with you that justification is not a little bit of me and a little bit of God. On paper, you would agree with that. My concern is that you have a practical middle ground. It's not doctrinal. You don't believe it in your mind, but you believe it in your heart. And there is this notion that churches, good churches can have people who come to church consistently and regularly and yet they're lost this is real this happens I imagine at every good church and my concern is for you dear friend your basis of salvation and hope What is it? Is it a hybrid? Is it this middle ground? That I've done my part and God kind of helps me out sometimes. One of the problems with coming to church regularly and tithing and doing all of the externals of Christianity is that leads us to believe that our hearts are right with God. But that is false. A wonderful way to illustrate this is if you live in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. And coming to church, tithing, witnessing, going on mission trips, those are good things. You ought to do those things. But you don't do them to be right with God. You do them because you're right with God. And what we must do is we must reject not just a passport, a passport that says self-righteousness, 
But we must also reject having two passports, having dual citizenship. What works in America does not work with God. God requires us to choose. And if we choose a hybrid, if we choose a middle ground, if we say yes to ourselves and yes to Jesus, we're actually saying no to Jesus. This is an either or here. It's either my righteousness or God's righteousness. You, you, you can't have both. Now the third point, we've stated two negatives. Justification is not, justification is not. What's the positive, Pastor? Tell me the positive. The positive is this. Justification is allegiance to Christ alone. Justification is allegiance to Christ alone. So if a dual citizenship doesn't work, if a citizenship of self, a passport of self-righteousness doesn't work, what does work? Well, what works is God's righteousness. And be found in him, not having, rejecting a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but instead having a righteousness. Look with me in the passage. I'm at the butt right in the middle. What we have to do to understand this passage is we have to fill in some of a verb that Paul has in the first part of the verse, but not in the second part. I'm sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. Let's, let's read at the beginning of verse nine again. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness, I'm adding that there, but having a righteousness that which comes through faith in Christ. Let me state that differently. But, ha- adding this in here, but having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. What type of righteousness is this? This is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul rejects self. He rejects a dual citizenship. He rejects a dual allegiance. And instead, he clings solely to the righteousness from God. Now let's unpack this. God here... Here we have, we have two divine agents. There's Christ in verse nine and there's God. Now Christ is God. The God here is God the Father. God the Father gives righteousness. Paul thought that the law gave righteousness. He believed that that was the gift that, that the law gave to him. And what he now sees is that it is God who gives a gift. And this gift that God gives, this gift that God the Father gives, is righteousness, a right standing. How do you have a right relationship with God? It is based upon his gift of righteousness. It is something that he gives to people. And another word that is included in this passage is faith. We have righteousness and faith, but that which comes through faith in Christ. But having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. So the way we attain righteousness from God is through faith in Christ. Now how do we put those puzzle pieces together? How does Christ, the person, relate to God's righteousness? How does that work? Look with me 
at Philippians 2, verse 8. Philippians 2, 8. We've got to fill some, some gaps in here. And Paul helps us in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 8. We've covered this passage. This is referring to Jesus. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming what? What, what did Jesus become for us? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The reason why, one reason why Jesus is of such value is that Jesus was obedient to God the Father. Jesus obeyed God the Father completely, perfectly, even to the point of death. And by obeying God the Father, he fulfilled the law. And Paul was right to think that the law gives gifts of righteousness, but Paul failed to see that the law requires perfect obedience. Jesus had perfect obedience. And so what the law gave to him is righteousness. Christ, through his life, his life matters. It's not just his death and resurrection, it's his life too. Through his life, through obeying the law, Christ earned for us righteousness. And this righteousness is God's own righteousness. This righteousness that Jesus earned from, for us is the righteousness that God the Father gives. So we, we, we get that understanding of righteousness. It's through Jesus' obedience that God now dispenses righteousness. But then we have faith. Faith, how does this fit in? Notice that Paul calls us to have faith in the object that earned our righteousness. Our faith is to be placed in the object that earned our righteousness. And our faith is in Jesus. The reason why we place faith in Jesus is because he is the one who obeyed for us. And by placing our faith in him, what we receive in return is a gift. And that gift is a right standing with God. The gift that you receive, dear friend, when you place your faith in Jesus is the righteousness that Jesus himself earned for you. And that righteousness is described here as righteousness from God. God blesses you with that when you have faith. That's how you tie it all together here. Now faith, and I wanna talk to the children here, children. Faith is, is, can, can be kind of a difficult concept to understand. But it's, children, we use faith all the time. And let me, let me prove that to you. So when you came into the sanctuary and you saw the chairs, did you think before you sat, you know what, I don't know if that's going to hold me up. I have some doubts about that chair. Let me think about it. Let me put my foot on it. Let me put my Bible on it. Did you think about that? No. Now, what do you call that lack of thinking about it? Why did you not think about it? The reason why you didn't think about the consequences of putting your, your bottom on the chair and whether it would hold you up is that you had faith. You trusted that this chair would keep you up. A very simple illustration. 
And it describes what faith is. Faith is simply trust. What Jesus calls us to do is to trust him like we trust a chair. You don't think twice about it. You sit and you have no other thought because you know the chair is going to hold you up. Same thing with Jesus. Same thing with Jesus. Faith in Jesus is believing that he is true. It's believing that from him you get righteousness. It's believing that Jesus earned for you righteousness. Very simple, but so profound. And so, dear friend, tying all this together, this is my conclusion for, the, for this point and for the sermon. Do you remember my third point? Do you remember it? I actually don't remember it exactly, so let me, uh, let me look at that. It was this. Justification is allegiance to Christ alone. Now, notice the point, okay? The point is not justification is allegiance to Christ. That is not my point. My point instead is justification is allegiance to Christ alone alone am I being intentional here yes and I want you to ask this question of yourself taking those two words Christ alone Christ alone which word is more important which word is more important is it Christ or is it alone Now, pastor, you're asking us a bad question. You're asking us to choose either or. You're right. It's a bad question. The question assumes an either or. The question assumes you have to pick between Christ and alone. Now, we know that Christ is is important. You wouldn't be here unless unless you had some type of conception that Jesus is important to you. My concern and my heart is that you would see just as much of importance in the word alone that you would in Christ. Dear friends, would you be willing to die for the word alone? Would you be willing to give your life not just for Jesus, but for him alone. Is he that precious to you that you say to God whenever you stand before him on judgment day and you say, do you say, Father, accept me because of Jesus plus something else? Or do you say, Father, accept me because of only Jesus Christ How important is that word alone to you? How important? Justification is not a dual citizenship. To be right with God, you must reject self-righteousness. You must reject finding salvation in your own efforts. You must abandon that pursuit. 
Paul demands that of us. And by rejecting self, what we cling to, what we put our faith in, is not just Christ, but Christ alone. That's what justification is. Justification is having faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Pray with me. Yes, Father, we give you thanks for Christ. Father, we pray that you would forcefully, lovingly, gently impress upon our hearts the importance of not just Christ, but Christ alone. Father, I pray that we would be willing to die for that word alone and that therefore we live for that word alone. Father, thank you for Christ. Make him precious to us. Turn us from our self-righteousness. In Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.